In the following live session recording, Tim Cool, Chief Solutions Officer for Cool Solutions Group in Charlotte, North Carolina, discusses why church buildings matter. The church campus and facilities tell a story. Tim Cool offers a unique perspective on the importance of church buildings. We cannot neglect the power of story and how our church facilities communicate a story. In this session, the listener will learn several key questions about church facilities, such as how does church space support the story of the people? How does the church space benefit the hearts, minds, and emotions of your guests? And how does your facility bring people into the story of the church? Let's join Tim now. Well, good morning. Um, I would love to just get a sense of who's in the room. So, how many of you are pastors? Anyone a pastor? Okay. How many of you are involved with some aspect of facilities at your church? Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. How many of you couldn't find a better session? Okay. So, a um, little bit of introduction. Uh, I am the uh, husband of one wife of 35 years and the father of almost 23-year-old triplets. Uh, my, my son Lee is sitting in the back of the room and uh, honored to have him part of our team as well. Um, so I've been doing assisting churches for about 34 years, um, all facility related, and um, I've had the, the privilege to help develop about 4 million square feet of worship facilities uh, um, in that period of time. So um, I may not be know everything, but I want to share with you some of the things I've learned over the last 34 years at least. So uh, a few years ago, um, I wrote a book called Why Church Buildings Matter. And if you'd have gotten that book before this hand, you wouldn't have had to come to the workshop because um, you'd have heard everything. But I, I wrote this, uh, the book, um, after visiting churches that I had built and been part of whose buildings no longer communicated the same story of what the church was. And, and we sometimes, we, we constantly talk about, well, that's just a tool. And I totally believe that the building will never save a soul. But it sure can be a distraction for somebody as a first-time guest. So I believe church buildings matter because people matter, which means that we can't start with the building. So I'm going to take you on a little bit of journey here at the beginning that has nothing to do with buildings. Because we have to kind of reset our mind to things. So what I suggest where we start is a clear ministry vision. Frankly, you don't need a building if you don't have a clear ministry vision. You can go rent a tent. You can go into a shopping center. There's lots of things you can do. You don't need a building. The building's just a tool to facilitate your vision and mission. Next is what stories does your facility lead to? Every facility is going to tell a story whether you're intentional about it or not. The next is what's the right tool? So um, in my session yesterday we talked a little bit about um, the concept of um, needing to have four master plans. And, and I believe every church should have four master plans. And this is outside of the, the slides here. So, um, And by the way, if you want to get the presentation, if you'll give my son your email address or business card, he'll email them to you when we get back to Charlotte. Um, 
But four master plans a church should have. The very first one is a ministry master plan. Who has God called us to be? I'll ask churches, so why do you exist? Well, we exist to love people and love God. Well, congratulations, you're a church. Why does your church exist? And what's God called you to be that's unique from other churches? The, the second master plan is your financial. How do you fund what God's called you to be? The third is facilities. Then the fourth is how do you sustain it long term? So understanding the right tool, which leads to the best utilization of the tool. I heard said by, I can't remember what speaker, that next to the NFL, the church is the worst user of real estate. Arthur Blank spent $1.2 billion to build the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta for eight home games a year. Now, yes, he hopes to make the playoffs. He hopes to rent it and do other things. But he basically built it for eight home games a year. $1.2 billion. Churches, unfortunately, are also in that boat a lot of times. As we have part of our building many times during the week that are sitting dark, not being utilized. So can we all agree that things change? I didn't see any hitching posts for buggies and, and horses out front. Um, you know, it's, I don't see lanterns, you know, lighting up the room. So things, things change over time. So let me walk you through some of the things, some changes that you'll be able to relate to. In 1986, this was my car phone, not a cell phone. It had a stick in the middle, had the phone on it, had a little box underneath of it that was a speaker, it had a little microphone that dangled, and had the coolest little antenna, spiral, you know, pig's tail kind of antenna. I paid a thousand dollars for that phone in 1986. And I could only do three things. I could make calls and I could receive calls if I was on the interstate. The minute I got about a mile off the interstate, there were no cell towers. They were all pretty much on, on the interstate. And it had a cool antenna mounted on the car and I had a big Caprice Classic. So it looked like a cop car with that little antenna on the back. So that's what that could do. Now, fast forward to today. How many of you have one of these crazy devices close by? Okay. Think of what you can do with this in just a matter of 34, 33 years difference. Um, you know, you can text, you can... I get frustrated when I show up at a church and I can't open my Bible because my Bible's on, on here. I do all my devotions and all my scripture reading from my phone. And so I get frustrated when I can't use it. Again, things have changed over time. Um, but all the things that we can do with mobile phones are, are pretty impressive. The first computer I ever bought in that same year, 1986, was an IBM PC Junior. Did anybody remember the IBM PC Junior? It had enough memory for maybe one Word document. It was really pretty skinny. Now you look at what we can do with computers. I mean, we can run. You can run your audiovisual and lighting system from an iPad sitting in another room if you need to. There's just all of this technology that is now taking over how we do things. Even offerings. How many of your churches do online giving? Anybody? Uh, national average is about 25 to 30% of all giving is done online. Uh, we happen to attend a church where over 90% of our giving is online. Uh, some of that's cultural, some of that's um, age and, and whatnot. But my dad, um, in his 80s and up until he passed away at 90, 
He did all of his bill paying online. He, it was easier for him to do that than get a stamp and or drive to a post office or walk down to the. He did so. It's really not an age thing. It's a generation. It's somewhat more of a mindset kind of thing. Even how we do churches. So Lee, I have to have to tell a story on you. So just close your ears if you have to. When Lee was 18, 19 years old, you you went and heard a, a friend preach on a Sunday night, and um, he wanted to go support a friend, and he was preaching the sermon for the first time. Lee called me afterwards and said, "Dad, they sang out of books." At age 19, he had never seen a hymnal. Again, things change. You know, back I grew up in a pastor's home, and how how frequent was it for us to see churches pop up in shopping centers and things like that? That's all changed even how we do church today. So, do me a favor and kind of look at your hand, look at your fingerprints, and then take a peek at somebody next to you. Now, don't hold their hand. That would just be weird. Um, are they exactly the same? Okay. So God created this really interesting thing called DNA, which makes us all unique. Um, several years ago, I had the honor to sit on a um, jury pool uh, for a sexual assault case. Six days in the jury box. Uh, I heard and saw things I could have lived my entire life not having to experience. But the last day of testimony, the prosecutor brought up the CSI, the criminal scientist. And I assure you, it's nothing like the TV ones. But she asked a very astute question. She said, what is the likelihood of the blood found on the scene to be the same blood of the defendant? And she said, one in six trillion. So then she said, how many people are there on the earth? Well, there's only seven billion. So he would have taken multiple solar systems in order to find an exact duplicate of that blood type. Same thing is true with our churches. No one church is exactly the same as another church. Not a single one of us. And there's, there's three primary factors into this. It's your people. You have different people. You have a different makeup than even a church a block away from you. And that people makeup impacts the makeup of your church. The next is your place. I assure you, churches in Anchorage, Alaska do church different than Miami Beach. Churches in Statesboro do different than Atlanta. There are just certain things that are place. But, but go beyond that. Think about, okay, God put us in on this street in this town, in this county, and so on and so on and so forth. That makes your church unique. The third is, what is we passionate about? What are the things that our leaders are very passionate about that drive us for all of our ministry initiatives? Where all three of those intersect is your church. You can go down the street, and you can probably find some people that are related to people in this church. You can probably find a church within close enough distance that you could say the place is the same, but they have different passions. You can find people in the same place with the same passion, but different people. So it's that intersection of those three things that make us all unique as a church. So there's, there's nothing wrong with modeling or, or seeing what other churches do, but to try to mimic another church is not what God called you to be. 
So understanding, again, that ministry master plan, that our uniqueness as a church, God called us to do this. So I'm going to take you through a little story of the evolution of um, culture and economics and storytelling. So let's say I went downtown Statesboro, just around the corner, and I could find somebody that would sell me unroasted, unprocessed coffee beans. How much would I have to spend to make one cup of coffee? Anybody want to venture? It's about five cents. Doesn't take much, I mean, the, the cost of coffee beans is really cheap before they're roasted and processed. So that, that society worked great when we were trading, you know, felt or pelts for food and so on and so forth in the agrarian society. Well, then comes along the industrial economy. And we decided, you know, we could put things on a conveyor belt and we can make all of our Model T's look the same. And you can have any, have any color you want as long as it's black. Um, and Maxwell House and, and Folgers started coming out with coffee in a big can. Um, and just for clarification, Folgers Crystals is not coffee. It's a dark warm substance in a cup, but it is not coffee. My grandparents used to drink Folgers Crystals growing up and it was just the worst thing ever. But anyway, so the beauty of this is I could show up at a grocery store almost anywhere in the country and get a can of Maxwell House and the quality would be about the same. The price would be very similar. So how much would it cost me to, to make one cup of coffee from a can of Maxwell House or Folgers? It's about 20 to 25 cents for one cup. So why am I willing to spend four to five times as much as just buying the unroasted, unprocessed coffee beans? Convenience. It's convenience. How many of you have a roaster at home? Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, so we now all of a sudden it's made it easy for us. Then we step from the industrial into the convenience age. How many of you get a big gulp of coffee in the morning on your way to work or something? What do you have to spend for a cup of coffee at 7-Eleven? Dollar and a half. Dollar and a half. Do I get my fifth for free? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so if, we, if we average that, then you're probably closer to $1.25. Dollar coin, yeah. Yeah. Um, so why am I willing to spend $0.05 cents for just the beans or $0.25 cents for a, enough scoop? I'm, I'm going up another, what, five, six times. Why, why am I willing to do that? Convenience. Well, it's a convenience. Now I'm using their hot water, their cup, their condiments, um, but do they want you to stick around all day? Maybe there's a chain of um, convenience stores out west called Get and Go. Because that's what they want you to do. They want you to get it and get out. And so they don't want you to hang around. There's no social component of getting your coffee at a 7-Eleven. Unless you happen to know the cashier. Well, then comes along a, a new economy that was promoted by a guy from Seattle... Uh, in somewhat of a drug-induced state uh, uh, touring Europe that said, we need a better experience for coffee in America. So I can't tell you for a fact that a grande non-fat extra hot caramel macchiato will cost you $4.50 because obviously I've never ordered one. But why, why would I pay $4.50 for a cup of coffee? I, I've lost my mind. I get that. But why would I do that? You guys don't have a Starbucks in your town, do you? Not in our town. Yeah, right. Oh, we do in Statesboro. 
Yeah. You know, a lot of it has, is it's the experience. Um, they have multiple stages of lighting. So they've got bright lighting, they've got lamp lighting, they've got floor lighting, they have comfy chairs and couches, they've got high tops, low tops, family tables. Um, has anybody been to a Starbucks and you've placed an order? Well, when you place an order at Starbucks, they most of the time will ask your name. You may be the only person in there, but they still ask your name. Do you, is it, do you think because they're stupid and they're going to find forget your name? Their barista manual says you ask the name so you build a relationship with that person. So you call their name, they feel welcome, and so on and so forth. Also, that $4.59 that I spend on their coffee, I can stay there all day. I get free Wi-Fi. I can listen to some pretty eclectic music. I can grab a snack. I can see some pretty interesting people from time to time. So it's created an experience that is attractional to at least part of our economy. What we've started to see, though, is the experience economy primarily benefits who? Me. The experience is about me. Yeah, yeah the company's obviously making money at, money at $4.50 a cup. But ultimately, what they're doing is to make me feel better about myself or so on and so forth. A trend that we're seeing in the market is a transformational economy. Has anybody ever bought a pair of Tom shoes? Yeah, we don't know, I know the brand. Yeah, so why would you buy a pair of Tom shoes? Comfort. Well, comfort's part of it. You like you like what their their companies just do and yes. what are, giving one away. Exactly. Yeah. So every pair of Tom shoes that are bought, they give a pair away to somebody else. Um, we're seeing that trend in the internet is a growing, growing piece. I bought a pair of new hiking shoes, Obet's hiking shoes last week, and on the side it says, you just helped us plant another tree. They plant a tree for every pair of shoes. Well now, as much as I like their shoes, there's a added benefit to it because now I'm also doing something good. Whether it's giving shoes away or planting a tree or whatnot. So we're seeing a, a larger trend to this. So what does this have to do with facilities? We've all agreed that things change. And our millennials, our Gen XYs and Zs and PDQs, this is what they start thinking about when they're thinking about how they're going to invest their money. Mm -hmm. I had a group of millennials I met with oh, several months ago. And they said, we're so frustrated that our church doesn't have recycling bins. Mm -hmm. my, my kids at age 23 don't know a world where there's not a recycling bin everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. At my work, at my home, you know, at the stores I, I go to. And so my church doesn't have one? Are you guys not good social citizens? Again, I'm not saying that we all need to run out and buy green trash baskets to put around our building. But we have to understand who our audience is and who we're trying to reach. So, let's look at now what story do facilities tell. Keeping in mind that things change over time, which means that we need to adopt, adapt with it as well. My, my favorite uh, quote by Winston Churchill is, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. So most of us do church the way our buildings tell us to do church. 
Rooms are certain size. They're in a certain location. If you're at this church, you need to have an internal GPS system to find your way from room to room. Um, it's a little bit of a maze. So all buildings are going to tell a story. The question is whether or not you intended to communicate the story you wanted to communicate. On your way home today, as you're driving home, pay a little closer attention to the buildings that you drive by. And either shout out loud or think in your mind, what story did that building just tell you? What did it communicate to you? Because this is not just specific to church buildings. This is all buildings. Uh, we drove by one last night on the way to, um, to our hotel uh, that's a really attractive building and it's sitting empty with a for sale sign on it. And so the story to me is someone went belly up. You know, there's an immediate story that went through my mind. It may be wrong. It may be totally wrong. Maybe someone retired. But the building sitting empty, it's a very attractive medical building. My first thought is they went belly up. But I, I may be judging that book by the wrong cover because of my, my perceptions. So I'm going to show some images of real churches. And I want you to, this, we're going to have an interactive part. You're going to have to actually speak to me. But I, I want you to give me your first reaction when you see these buildings. So put on your hat that I'm new to town and I'm driving by these buildings at 25 miles an hour. So a, a couple of, of caveats. One is there's nothing offensive with any of the pictures I'm going to show you. Secondly is I'm not disparaging any of them. They all have a purpose in place. So with that in mind, tell me what you, you're driving by this building for the first time. What's your first thought? Tem uh, temporary? Contemporary. Contemporary, okay. Couldn't afford brick. Yeah. <laughs> so budget minded. <laughs> okay. How about this one? Couldn't afford stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a gym. Yeah. Warehouse. You know, from, from an architectural standpoint, I find nothing attractive about this building. But there's a redeeming factor. Obviously, it was a, a factory or something else, and they redeemed the building for spiritual purposes, which saved from having to waste more human re, uh, uh, natural resources or buy new land or do all this kind of stuff. So to me, there's a redemptive factor to this, even though I don't find the architecture very pleasing. How about this one? Gothic. Gothic, old. A lot of history. Okay. Tradition. My first thoughts when I saw this picture was, you're downtown and you have no parking. <laughs> I, I don't know. They may have a thousand parking spaces right. behind you. But my first inclination is, you're downtown, so you have no parking spaces. So, how about this? This is a real church. When I first saw it, it was these people have more. Uh, money than brains. Starbucks Baptist <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they got this nice Gothic church behind it, and they put on this pimple on the side of it. That's, you know, again, someone was looking to get an award, apparently. So this is all open? Not, yeah, it's all open. It it's an open wedding chapel. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> what does this tell you? Yeah, Colin's church. <laughs> <laughs> this screams to me. 
first something. Yes. Yes. First Baptist, first Methodist, first Presbyterian, yeah. first right. something. So I was a music major in college. Don't hold that against me. And I have a pink tassel to prove it. Which I never have figured out why they give music majors a pink tassel. You go through four years of ridicule for being a music major, and then they give you a pink tassel to kind of send you on your way. I don't get it. But as a music major, the first thing I think about is choir robes and hymnals. Those are the first two things that pop in my mind. I may be totally wrong. They may have wild lights flying in there and guys in skinny jeans and flip-flops, but the building doesn't communicate that. How about this? Tent revival. Tent revival. Church of Fancy tent. Church of Anybody been out to Saddleback? They have a bunch of these out there. Quick. Uh, Saddleback, Rick Warren's church. This is called a sprung building. Um, it's, 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 it's less expensive than building new, but not that much more. Not that much less. It's about a 25 structure. Well, it's a permanent structure, except that the skin's only good for 10 years. Oh, so you got to reskin it every 10 years. Uh, but you can get it up. You can get it built in about half the time, and it's about 25 percent less than building stick frames. And one one of our clients in uh, St. Louis has one of these right on the interstate, and it's brown. Oh, really? Kind of a, a tan. And every time we met with the city to talk about a new building, they said, when are you getting rid of the onion? Because it looked like an onion from the road. How about this? Retreat. Thomas Kincaid? Okay. Um, does anyone know who Eric Geiger is? Former number two person to Tom Rainer at Lifeway. Oh yeah. Um, Eric uh, left Lifeway to become the lead pastor at this church. This is Mariner's Church out in Huntington Beach, California. Um, they run about ten thousand people on a weekend, and they have a four thousand seat black box. Do you know what I mean by black box? You know, industrial warehouse feeling. You know, blacked out ceilings, no windows, kind of thing. That's that's what they worship in. What they found is where they are in Huntington Beach, they've got 50 acres of land that's worth three or four gazillion dollars. The people that live around them in the million dollar homes, a lot of them come from a liturgical background, mm -hmm. Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran. The black box doesn't say church to them. So they were almost irrelevant to their local community because no one saw them as a legitimate church. So they needed a, a wedding chapel. So they built this 350-seat wedding chapel because it's cheaper to heat and cool 350 seats than 4,000 seats when you have 200 people for a wedding. But then they also made it, on the inside, they keep it open 24-7. It has prayer stations, very similar to what you'd see in a liturgical church. So they've got the candle lighting area where you can light candles like you would in a Catholic church. They've got rolled up parchment to put in the wall that then the staff comes and reads the prayer request. But the building, they put on the front of their, their campus, so now it's kind of a beacon to the community of this is a church. And it's drawn people in because of that. One last image. Well, 
This is a youth building at a Baptist church in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, you can't hardly see it, but right there is an airplane. And the building's called the hangar. They, were, they run about 350, 400 youth in there on a weekend. And they were looking for a building that would communicate youth and activity. The idea of the hangar is we're all going to get on this journey together, come here, we're going we're to go out then you know, to the world from there. And uh, again, they were looking to communicate a specific message with the building. There's a functional side of it, obviously, but they were wanting to com communicate a very specific story. So all facilities will communicate a story. The question is, is it congruent with who you are? If your church says we believe in compassion ministry and foreign missions and so on and so forth, and you've got Italian marble floors, you're telling a bait and switch story. Um, if I walk into your building and I don't see let me, let me challenge you when you go home. Walk through your building as if you've been you're going there for the first time and determine if no one was there to speak a word, would they know what the church believes and stands for mm -hmm. as you walk through your building? Mm -hmm. So it's, it needs to be congruent with who you are, who you say and think you are, which is different than who you are. Uh, we do a fair amount of Sunday morning visits uh, to churches as, as a consultant. And I love it when the church says, or the leadership says, oh yeah, we're a friendly church. You're going to really enjoy this. And I show up, and I don't get a bulletin. No one shakes my hand. And during the greeting time in the service, no one comes over to me. What they really meant is we're friendly with each other. But we're not really a friendly church. So sometimes who we think we are is different than who we really are. The next one is who we believe, uh, what we believe, our vision and mission. Is the building congruent with our vision and mission? This next one always gets me in trouble, but it, it's a great thought-provoking comment. Is, is it congruent with who we're trying to reach? And I like to use the term target. I like to use the business term target market. Now, before anyone gets, up, anyone gets upset, I believe that the target market for the Church Universal, capital C Church, is the Great Commission. Every local church has a separate target market, whether you've identified it or not. Mm -hmm. I can show up in the first few minutes of a worship service, and your prelude will give me a good indication as to who your target market is. If there's a Bach fugue going on on a pipe organ, you've got a specific target market. If you come to the church that my son and I attend, it's flip-flops, t-shirts, uh, I consider it full contact worship. You know, it's subwoofers, it's got earplugs, the whole nine yards. Different target, not right or wrong. Neither, none of them are right or wrong. When I think target market, I don't think exclusionary. What I'm thinking of is where do we commit most of our time and resources? Larry Burkett, Dave Ramsey, both of them have used the analogy that if you really want to know where your heart is, look at your checkbook. So when I think of targeting, it's where do we commit our efforts? doesn't mean that we don't want younger, older, middle-aged, whatever. Um, the church we attend, their target market is 25 to 35 year olds. I don't quite fall in that category. I'm just a little older than that. 
but I don't I don't feel shunned. I'm more than welcomed at the church. Maybe they like the tithe, probably, because <laughs> the 25-year-olds aren't giving quite as much. Um, so we need to be congruent with who our target is that we're trying to reach. And then your community. That The first two buildings that I showed you, those metal structures, they're, they're functional, they work. Um, but too often church planters uh, shoot themselves in the foot tied to how do they relate to their community. So a typical church planter, after a couple of years of meeting in homes and whatnot, they decide we need to buy land. And so they do all their demographic studies and they find the best part of town that's growing the quickest. And they buy land and because it's the fastest growing, they pay the most for it. Well, so now they're out of money, but they need a building. So they put up one of those austere metal buildings without consideration of, hey, I'm surrounded by half a million dollar to a million dollar homes because I've bought in the best area of town. And now I've put up a building that that doctor or attorney are not coming to. They're not coming to the little metal building on the corner. If anything, you've probably ticked them off. They're thinking, you've just destroyed the property values in our area by putting up your tin building. So we have to be cognizant of, of the kind of impact that we make on our community. So I believe our facilities need to be contextual to who God's called us to be, who our target is, and our means and methods. So let me, let me take a little break and, and have a little fun with you all. Describe your church as a facility, as a vehicle. And it can be any vehicle. It can be a real one, a made-up one. How would you describe your church building, particularly, as a vehicle, and why? It's a one that needs repair. Okay. It's a vehicle that needs repair. We're able. To, we're using it, but it's, it's in need of repair. Okay. And uh, need to face it. Got it. So it's a it's a 1968 Ford station wagon with wood paneling in there that the outside that you just keep going. It's got the size you need. You can get the family in it, but someone else. We're like this big old huge tourist bus that can hold 50 something people, mm -hmm. but it's old too, and it needs some. Um, it's old and empty. Mm -hmm. Need some updates. Mm -hmm. yep. Anybody else? I promise not to tell your pastor. Uh, well, we don't know the vehicle analogy there, but we know that it's doing. Our church is doing a lot, but we're past. We're in need of more space, more room, mm -hmm. more everything. So you've got a you've got a clown car. Where you've got packed all the clowns with their legs hanging out of it. And you need to think about getting the SUV now to. Yeah, exactly. We did the we did the minivan thing right right after the triplets were born, and uh, I had vowed we'd never have a minivan. Then we had a minivan, and as soon as it died, we moved to the SUV. I think I would describe my facilities as a Chevrolet you need to upgrade to a Lexus. <laughs> I mean, the building outside is the necessary inside. Mm -hmm. Updating, uh, you know, we really need to do some work there. 
So I was at uh, Coates Baptist over near Raleigh two weeks ago doing uh, an assessment for them. And they've got, I told the pastor, I said, you've got great bones. The building's only 25 years old. It's in good shape. Uh, it's really, really well built. I mean, they did some things in the construction that are, you don't see, like um, drywall expansion joints in the walls to keep you know from cracking. It was well painted, carpet was clean, but it does, doesn't meet their needs anymore. It's got corridors that are only six feet wide, and they're long shotgun. And then even to walk into the sanctuary, the sanctuary door is offset, and so it's really awkward to get into the sanctuary. It's just, it, it doesn't fit how they want to do ministry. It was great 25 years ago when they had it designed and built, but now they're being forced to do ministry the way their building tells them to do ministry. They've got no secure check-in for kids, which is a big deal. You know, we are addressing things in the church today that 20 years were totally unthinkable. You know, it, it was no big deal for, for kids and adults to be walking down the same Sunday school hallway. Today, your first time guests, they're looking for their child to be sequestered away from everybody else. How do you keep them secure? We, we get all in arms when there's an active shooter incident. And they're tragic. So I'm not downplaying it. But the likelihood of an active shooter happening in your church is 0.0001%. We have 10, 12 of them a year, or at least that's what it seems like. But there's 350,000 churches in America, so the percentage is so small. The likelihood of a child being confiscated by a parent that doesn't have rights to that child or a grandparent is much higher. The likelihood of being broken in on Sunday, uh, on Monday, before you get to the bank, is much higher than an active shooter. So, we need to be thinking about those kind of things. So, how many of you have a building that's over 30 years old? Okay, I figure. So, one of the questions that that uh, Dr. Rayner asked me to address in a podcast with him is, "What do we do? We've got this building. We're not going to tear it down." What do we do? So, you know, the questions we're asked is, how do you change the story of the building? How do you contextualize the building to how you do ministry today? Uh, does the space fit? The space does not fit us. So, what, what needs to be accommodated? One of the biggest things we see um, is churches that were built in the 80s and 90s where the 1,200 to 1,500 seat sanctuary was all the rave before multi-site and multi-venue came on the scene. And now they're running 600 people in a room that seats 1,200 to 1,800 people. And it feels cavernous. And as a first-time guest, if I walk into that room with only 600 people in it, my first thought's going to be they're dying, even though it could be a very thriving ministry. So we, we've seen a lot of where we're helping churches right-size facilities. Then how, do, how are we caring for an aging facility? These are all questions my guess is most of you are wrestling with even right now. So how do we contextualize an aging facility? Start with the basics, not the building. Okay? Going, go back, before you try to contextualize your building, go back to who are we, who is our target, and what is our vision? If you can assume, if you, and this is really difficult, but if you can assume that we don't have a building right now, and this is who we are as a congregation, 
and this is how we'd like to do ministry. You know, in 1955, this was the Sunday School Board's idea of education. Center room, four, five, six classrooms all around it. What we found yesterday is each one of these rooms is now a storage closet. They're not being used for educational purposes because we do ministry different today. You know, if anyone uses the orange uh, curriculum out of North Point, you know, it's large group, small group, all in the same room in some cases. So how do you how do you fulfill what God's called you to do from a ministry programming standpoint within your facility? So I always recommend don't look at how you should do ministry in the building you've got to start with. Ultimately, we have to come back to that because you've got a building and you've got to make it work. But start with how you would want to do it if the building wasn't there. Then ask the facilities. Are the, are the facilities a deterrent to how you want to do ministry? Are the facilities hampering us from doing ministry the way we want to? Are they hampering the story we want to communicate to guests? Again, the, the things that can go without saying should be said more often. If, it's, if your building's for us four and no more, don't worry about it. You know, just keep the lights on and keep going. But if the building is there as a tool to reach those who are not here yet, then you need to think about those who are not here yet and not what we like and so on and so forth. Are the facilities hampering us from doing ministry? Then this, this last one's one of my favorite when I'm consulting with the church is if the governor of Georgia showed up on your step and said, you can only use this building for three things, what three would it be? You know, church, churches constantly say, well, we, you know, we've got to have um, the, the place for the um, uh, quilting ministry. <laughs> we've got to have this and that. No, no you don't. If, if you only had three things you could do, what would they be? Now, Lord willing, we'll never get to that point to where the government will tell us that. But it helps you focus. I'm yet to find a church that can be all things to all people. It, it, it doesn't exist. Um, so what's God called you to be, and what can you be the best at, at what God's called you to be? Okay, so be that. Facility needs in today's church. Here's trends that we're seeing as far as what... what churches are doing. The first is gathering spaces are becoming larger and larger and larger. First church building I ever built was in 1986 and it was United Methodist Church so we called it the Narthex. But the lobby, the foyer, whatever we want to call it, was large enough for two high back chairs with velvet seats, a table with all of the um, offering envelopes and that's maybe a plastic plant. And that was it. It really was just a means to get from the sanctuary to my car. It was a place where I passed through. Not anymore. We're finding that our lobbies <coughs> are where people do life together. It's where the interaction happens before and after services. And in our time-starved economy that we all live in, sometimes Sunday morning is the only time that you're going to see some of these people. That's right. So how do you build relationships with them if you're just passing through? We, we in so many of our buildings have created cattle shoots instead of community places. Uh, Dr. Rayner wrote a, a blog 
several years ago on the death of the Fellowship Hall. Mm -hmm. it's, it's generally the second largest space in your building, and it's only used once or twice a week. Is that really a good use of a facility? So when we're working with churches now, we're generally recommending that your lobby is at least 50% the size of your worship space, if not 100%. Because that's where the cafe is, it's where the resource center is, it's where the, the living room furniture is set up, it's where the high tops are set. Oh, and by the way, you can do fellowship in it. And so it, you're, you're using it for multiple things. Kids ministry, safe and engaging. That is a... How many of us think that we can continue to grow our church with, with a congregation of only reaching 75-year-olds and up. We're going to have to have young families at some point in time. So I'll go work with a church and they say, yeah, young families are our target market. And I'll walk through their children's space and I say, no, it's not. I, I did an assessment for a church in Florence, South Carolina, and in my report I said, I would never bring my children and leave them in your children's space. It was mildew and mold on ceilings, window air conditioning units, dirty floors. I'm like, no, I would never leave my child in this space. Again, we have to be thinking about those who aren't here yet, not just those of us that grew up in the building. Safety considerations. How, how, are, we, how are we keeping our occupants safe throughout the building? I'm not just talking about having guys with guns and things in their ear. But there's a lot of safety considerations. We've seen a trend in less adult education space, but in the last year, I've seen a resurgence in Sunday school, um, which surprised me because 10 years ago, I would have told you it's dead and dying, never coming back. Today, I've got several clients that are running a one-to-one -one ratio, Sunday school to worship, which is unheard of. So I, I did a research with several pastors and said, what do you think the, the reason is? There's a first one is there's a trend towards wanting a, a, a more of a master teacher because frankly you can find lots of Sunday school teachers but to find really really good communicators and Bible teachers mm -hmm. they're far and few between and so people are wanting a more um, I was gonna say refined that's not the right word but they're looking for a better teaching experience so I have to have bigger rooms. I can't do that in my home. I can't have, house 30 people at my home. Another reason, Sam Rayner is the pastor at West Bradenton uh, down in Florida, tough place to work. And he said that they passed a, a rule at their church that you cannot have an off-site group without organized child care that's sanctioned by the church. Because even though it's an independent group meeting off-site, the church is liable for what happens in that event because exactly, yeah. while it is not maybe a formulated it's still ordained by the church That's right. and endorsed by the church the church is liable for it and so if someone were to have a mishap with a child mm -hmm. the church is in deep trouble and so what sam's seen is more of their groups are moving back into the building a lot of it on sunday morning but during the week as well because there's always organized child care They've got the right rooms for it. You may have to hire you know, the, the, the caregivers and whatnot. But so those are some factors that we're seeing play into the kind other of thing, the other thing, Tim, is when you create that sense of community, 
people won't sit the way this room is designed. Yes, they won't. They won't sit in column. They have to have larger space yep. so they can see each other and interact. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Eric. When we're helping a church plan their, their space, one of the questions we ask is, how do you want to do adult education? Mm -hmm. If it's in rows like this, we need about 15 square feet per person. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do circles, we're going to be 18 to 20 square feet per person. Because right. you're not using the space as efficiently as you could. And, and like couples classes, the nature of that class, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're high academic, they're, mm -hmm. gonna, they're okay sitting like this. Yeah. They're taking notes, going crazy. I mean, yeah. But, but the teacher, you may have to move that facility for the type of teaching that that person does. And so, in our case, what we designed for youth space to be large mm -hmm. became couples classes because they were the fastest growing classes. And the way they wanted to do class, mm -hmm. they couldn't, they, they would bust at the seams if they're going to sit like that. Mm -hmm. You know, Sunday school board years ago, like you talking about, it was that smaller adult space, you get them to sit like we're sitting in here, and therefore you can have more. So you got more square footage we had to expand to, had to build a whole new youth facility so they could do what they do. But then all the youth classrooms we had to create so they could do class like that. And mm -hmm. it will cost you, you got a heat and cool day. I mean, it's a lot easier to build the space than it is sometimes get people to cooperate to do it differently. Yeah. You know? And it wasn't a bad thing, it was causing our church to grow. Did you guys incorporate any kind of living room furniture in some of those bigger rooms? That, it, it would vary, it, like there again, we let that teacher set that up. But if you wanted uh, 20 to 30 year olds, the coffee station became a big centerpiece. Mm -hmm. uh, the comfortable furniture became, you know, not just, just your chairs, uh, but it became a lot more inviting towards that. Uh, even things like the flooring, when I left there, we were designing flooring very different than like yeah. where you had carpet. It was going back to more of like the plank wood floor mm -hmm. that was just, they see it more contemporary. Yeah. yeah, we one of our clients is Southside Baptist Church in Savannah. Mm -hmm. And one of their adult classrooms, mainly geared towards young Marys, mm -hmm. they got rid of all of these. Sure. And they've got high tops around that people sit at. They've got sofas and mm -hmm. Lazy boys, I'm never moving. <laughs> and then, then they've got a coffee station in the room off to the side, you know, with a refrigerator and stuff. Again, it creates that, that casual environment that kind of almost emulates a home type setting, but it's big enough that you can handle 30, 40 people. And where you have a media center, it would look more like somebody at a table center at home rather than a projector and those kind of things, big screen TV. Yep. So along with that, you know, larger educational space, as Eric's already mentioned, and especially for kids. Um, comfortable seating, technology abounds. Wi-Fi, video, good sound, digital wayfinding. These are all things that are, are, are becoming not the unique, it's the norm. It's becoming more of the norm. And ease of access and parking is a big deal. With that, and coupled with the idea of safety considerations, how many of you, when you pull into your parking lot, have 15 door options to go into? You know, we, we're trying to encourage people to not have so many access points because you've got a safety issue. Plus, if everyone's coming in at different points, then you don't have the opportunity for that common area. Uh, First Baptist Tupelo is one of our clients, and they have a sanctuary, then they have a fellowship hall that they do contemporary worship, and both of them run about 500 people in, in both. 
they're on opposite ends of a very long gated building. And if you went to one service, you went there. If you came to the other service, you came here. They had two separate lobbies. As part of our redesign, we're getting rid of those and making a central lobby in the middle of the campus so everyone comes into and then goes from there so that you can create this sense of connectivity regardless of which service you're going to. And just try to provide, because I personally enjoy a cross and a multi-generational church. Yeah. There's so much to learn from those ahead of me and things I can offer those behind me. But if I am never rubbing shoulders with them because they're on that end of the building, I'm on this end of the building, how do we build that community as a church? So I mentioned already a couple things about the idea of right-sizing our buildings. Does anybody have a sanctuary that's too big? So it's a common thing. Um, and I mentioned this yesterday in a workshop, so I'll give it to you guys for free is when you're looking at your operational cost, it cannot be a factor of what your budget is. It has to be a factor of what your square footage is. If you had 30,000 square feet and a budget of a half a million dollars a year, and then the next year you've got 30,000 square feet and you're down to a $300,000 budget, you still got the same amount of square footage to heat, to cool, to clean, to plan for long term. So you can't base it on the budget, otherwise you will increase your deferred maintenance at an exponential rate. So right-sizing, you know, converting something to an appropriate or an optimum size. That's the, that's the definition from Google. That's what right-sizing means. Companies do it all the time. We hear it in the news. GE is right-sizing their workforce and they lay off 5,000 people or something like that. Same thing can apply to our church facilities. Stay calm and go back to the start, meaning go back to your vision. What's your vision? Everything has got to go back through vision and mission. Has anyone read the book by Simon Sinek called Start With Why? It's a, it's a secular book, but his premise is that most organizations know what they do and how they do it. They don't know why they do it. So getting everything to go back to the why, what's God called us to? Why are we doing ministry the way that we do it? And so on and so on and so forth. So, many churches have just too much worship space. So, most of the older churches that we find that have too much worship space have too little common space. So, how do you move that wall into the worship center to increase your common area and right-size your sanctuary? A lot, if you've got pews, they're probably 36 inches back-to-back. -back. That's typical spacing. Well, what if you took some pews out and made them 42 inches back-to-back so it feels like there's more people because you've got less pews. Why not take the last three rows of pews out all together and have information tables back there? Again, it pushes everybody up closer to the front. Um, unlike Eric, who's a, a backslidden Baptist in the back row. Um, so again, possibly a large lobby into that space. Change your seating, make wider rows. There's lots of things you can do from an, I hate to say it this way, from an illusion standpoint to make the room feel more full than it really is. Enlarge the platform and bring it closer to the people. You know, a lot of our platforms, we're 10, 12 feet away from the first row, maybe even 20 feet away. Well, what if we brought the platform out a little bit and got us within eight feet 
the first row. Now I've taken up two or three pews, so I've eliminated excess seating, but I've got a more engaging environment with, with, the, um, with the people in the pews. Another option is to cut back on the platform, especially oversized choir lofts. Yes. We just helped Hermitage Hills Baptist Church in Nashville. They, when they built the building 25 years ago, big, massive choir loft. They don't have a choir anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they had all this, they had probably 2,500 square feet of choir loft. So we cut the whole thing off, made it one big flat stage, which then allows them to do productions, to do ministry the way they're currently doing it. And if they ever want a choir, they can bring in temporary risers, set the choir up, and then move them off. So it allowed for more flexibility for them. Use digital graphics to make the room feel proportionate. Uh, this is really critical in kids' area. So I am not a big fan of the um, half car coming through the wall. Okay, that, that used to be all the rave. Um, the problem is, is in a matter of two or three years, it's outdated. Because the group that just moved out of that room, they don't care about it anymore. The group moving into it can't relate to it. So as you cycle through kids, so I'm a big fan of using digital graphics in kids' rooms. Change the environment with stuff you can project on the walls and the floors and so on and so forth. You can do the same thing in your, um, in your worship space. You can do some things that will highlight areas you want people to be in and darken areas people you don't want to be in. So the whole sectioning off even some of your house lighting can be a big, big deal. Another factor you could do here is pipe and drape curtain off section of your seating. Cut off the back third. Just you know, Don't let people sit back there. Just totally enclose it in pipe and drape and um, just make it unavailable. The beauty of that is on Christmas and Easter when you need those seats, you just pull the pipe and drape and get them out of the way, but during your weekly stuff, you've got, you've got something that's more right-sized. And we all know that people give more when they sit closer. <laughs> I mentioned this earlier, too many churches have just too little lobby space. And we create this bottleneck, this, this cattle shoot kind of environment, where you're just trying to get beyond people and get through people instead of being able to stop and have a conversation. In so many of our lobbies, where would, where would two mothers be able to plan a play date with their kids if everyone's pushing the cattle you know, out the door? So some options with lobby space. You know, see the above about worship. How do we move lobby into the worship area if we don't need all the worship? Open up other adjoin, adjoining walls. If, if you've got a Sunday school classroom on this side, if this was our lobby and this is all the bigger, what if we remove this wall or cut a big opening in it? So maybe it's structural, and so we do a big case opening. Now I've enlarged this, and I move my education someplace else. Add glass to make it feel larger. Anything that you can do that adds glass both external and internal will make the space feel bigger because you're not as boxed in. If this was a glass wall, this room would feel twice as big. That's right. And so adding some glass, that's, that's a low, it's not cheap, but it's, it's lower cost type of impact. If you can, raise the ceilings. Getting them up a little higher will give you a sense of volume. And it will make the space feel more right-sized. Add visual aids and utilize wall space versus floor space. Instead of having the big table here, instead of having um, 
the big sofas that are in the way of, of getting through, put stuff on the wall. That's right. I'm not a big fan of the, of the welcome desk. Because a welcome desk becomes an us and them scenario. Think about it. When you go to a hotel to check in, do, do they come out to you and, and try to get you checked in? They expect you to walk up to that desk. So as a first-time guest, I assure you, I am not coming to your welcome desk. I'm an introvert by nature. None of you probably realize that. But I'm an introvert by nature. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to walk up to that desk. And so from a first-time guest experience, we've got two people standing behind the welcome desk expecting our guests to take the initiative to make a connection. Instead of, I'm a big fan of welcome areas, but you could do wall kiosks with material, check-in, and things like that instead of consuming floor space, which makes the rooms feel better, bigger. We, we have a real concern in our church. My people, I say to stay outside, don't go inside that room. Mm -hmm. They do, they stay out, and they go to people. Mm -hmm. I find it's very effective. It's, it's very effective. And then, remove furniture. Or downsize the size of your furniture. Instead of having that big stuffed couch, go to IKEA and buy a small, skinny sleep couch that takes up half the space but still allows you seating there. There's just things like that that you can do again to right size the, the space. Well, I may I may get crucified at church tomorrow. I'm gonna tell you why. <laughs> I'm the educational minister, and my youth department had 16 couches in it, Sunday mm -hmm. rooms. I talked to the uh, maintenance guy. He said, what you want me? I said, I want him out of there. They all went to the dumpster outside. So I may get crucified. <laughs> but the teacher said they wanted them out. Mm -hmm. And they were old and they were smelling. Well, and that's, that's the other problem is too often we have these yeah. sofas and furniture that were grandma's 50 years ago and they donated it to the church. And so we stick it someplace because it was free. All that stuff is a one-way trip. Mm-hmm. Comes in, but it never goes back out. No. Nope. Well, somebody's got to have the courage to go in there and say it's killing. Yeah. I'm gonna have somebody say tomorrow it's gonna be a senior film. Brother Reed, why didn't y'all find somebody to get that to? Well, we tried that. <laughs> somebody could use it. Was we ought to say it's Yeah, we. One of the one of our clients in Charlotte, um, they were moving out of their building because they were bulldozing it to build a new one, and. Um, we staged everything with a, uh, an estate sale company mm -hmm. and then let the church come in over a weekend and anything that you wanted, you can take. So the doilies that had been on the table, the hand, you know, the cross stitch, wall hanging, if you want it, you take it. But if it's, if it's still here on Monday, it's going to the duct. Mm -hmm. Just plain and simple. How about our eight? choir chairs that were originally at the beginning of the church is still at the church and they're humongous wooden built armed chairs mm -hmm. that are still there and probably will be till certain people die mm -hmm. then we can get rid of them but is until there, then we're stuck with eight or ten i'm not even sure how many of them is there a space that you could do a historical right a chapel if you could create a chapel and you put those eight chairs in there with an altar rail, call it a chapel. What I just told her was maybe we build new classrooms in the old adult class. Yeah. They, all those chairs go in there because they're the people that sit in those chairs. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, it, it's crazy. Nostalgia's tough to deal with because you don't want to displace people who are probably going to pay for the new stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, but you know, the idea that, hey, we, we, we're 
create church for who hasn't come yet. Yeah, that, that's, that's key. My, I've used my dad as an example a couple times. He was a Wesleyan pastor. Uh, so I was a PK, which makes me a little twisted. So just forgive me for that. Um, but my dad was a traditionalist. Um, in his retirement age, when he moved up to Charlotte, they would go to First Baptist Indian Trail. He loved the choir. Yeah. He loved the congregational singing. He, 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 that, that was him. He would never come to the church we attended, but he listened to the sermon every Sunday because he believed in the vision of the church that we attended. That's right. And he would give to it as well. He would never attend it. And so there's times we have, we always have to honor the past. Sure. Okay. The shoulders of the people that God is here have got to be honored. But we also need to bring them along to see the vision of what the future is. It may not be their children that are going to benefit, but their grandkids, great grandkids. And the language you use guides the reaction, the attitude that it's received. Yes. Don't call it getting rid of something. Right. Call it preservation. Preservation and, and making room for the new. We want a preservation room for our historical effects. And we want to honor that, but we're afraid if we leave it here, what the general use is. You won't have that preservation. So what can we do to create a preservation situation? Man, some blue-haired lady will give $10,000 for the preservation. It has happened. Mm -hmm. They'll give ten grand for the preservation room, and it's out of your way, and they feel like, boy, they're special now. Yeah. So your language makes a big... And if you can't say it, hire somebody who will come in and say it for you. Yeah. Like Tim Cole. He's that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm good at slaughtering sacred cows. Yeah. You know, and never in a dis, dishonoring way. But there's some things that become hindrances to doing church the way God's called us to do church in 2019 from right. 2069. So, too often our kids' classrooms are too small. So again, go back to the basics. Who are we trying to reach? Go back to the vision, the why. Does anybody see a pattern here? Okay. Open up adjoining walls to a large space. Change your programming. When I first get retained by a church, my first question is, is there anything we can do from a programming standpoint before you ever consider building? That's right. Multiple services are the least expensive way to grow your congregation. Because you're not, you're not building more square footage. The churches that, that build that 500, 800, 700 seat auditorium to be used one time a week, man, you'd almost be better off in a 400-seat sanctuary and run it two and three times a week. Now, I realize there is a burden on then staff and volunteers and all that that goes with it, so I'm not saying that's, that's the end-all, answer-all, but it is definitely something to consider. So what can we do to change our programming? E even something simple as, hey, we don't have enough education space. Well, what, let's go to two Sunday schools. What if you do Sunday school and worship simultaneous two times in a row? Now, if you do that, you're going to have to have more parking. Okay, so not, I'm not saying that's a free option, but it's a whole lot less expensive to add a little bit of parking than it is add another 10,000 square feet of building, at which you'd have to add more parking for that too. Um, get, get your kids' space closer to your worship, particularly your nursery age. A, a new mama wants to be close to where baby's going to be that's right. so that I can get access to them if I need to. Change the furniture in your kids' rooms. Instead of having these type chairs, go again with a sleeker, more contemporary, go with wood benches with no backs on them at all. 
Have them sit on the floor. There's lots of things you can do that and get away with with kids um, that we couldn't with adults. Convert underutilized fellowship halls or gym to large group spaces for your children. If, if you've got a fellowship hall that's only being used at you know, Harvest Sunday and Homecoming Sunday and a couple times a month, is that really the best use? If, you, if you're out of education space, for particularly kids, and you need large group space, why not restructure the way the large group space is, is used? And then brighten up your rooms. Make them engaging. Okay. In your children's space, get away from builder beige. Yeah. How, how important is that in children? We, we had a situation in my church where we had to close down our daycare. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was an employee problem. We didn't want to do anything wrong. But we converted it into a children's building. It looks like a nursing home to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what it looks like. And I'm trying to ensure, let's, let's do something brighter over there. Let's make it more children. Would that help? Oh, it would. Yeah. We're, we're working with um, North Trenton Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina. They've got a 1950s building, a kid's building. When you walk down, it, it's, it's similar to this where all the doors open out, which means that your corridor gets shrunk. When everybody's leaving, now all of a sudden you've got you know, three foot being taken up on both sides of the corridor. And it felt very institutional. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what we suggested to them is step, notch out, and put your doors inset, angle them, and then paint the, the portal a bright color so that as you're down the hallway, somebody say, yeah, go to the green room down there. Go to the red door down there. And do those kind of things. It helps you not just from a, a, um, an attractional part, but it's great wayfinding. This way, it allows you to help people navigate the building. And one issue we have too, when you got up there is uh, we've been nursing close to the work center. Our children goes and got to go in a complete different hall to go outside yeah. to get to it. Yeah. And, uh, and we thought about moving our nursery to the educational building where the adults are, but they said, well, it'd be too much noise across the hall. We we got classes <laughs> over. So what do you do in that yeah. bad situation, really? Yeah. So. If you've got an aging building, you also probably are dealing with ADA issues as well. Um, can you imagine putting a wheelchair on that? It'd be a fun ride for a little while. <laughs> so, some options, you know, adding some ramps. If you don't have elevators and whatnot, think about ramps. And they have to be a 1 on 12 slope to meet ADA code. Um, how many of you have a ramp to your platform? Anybody? If you do any major renovation in your building that requires you to get a building permit, expect to add a ramp or a chairlift to your platform because current code requires it. Someday I expect that we're going to have the code officials say you also have to have a chairlift to get people in your baptistry. They already did. Yeah, some places already did. So. It, that won't surprise that's, me. That's local ordinance. Yeah, the Georgia Amendment doesn't require it. Consider other egress means. How do we get people out of the building on grade easier? Um, consider changing your primary circulation paths to function better for ADA uh, compliance. Uh, vertical circulation, adding elevators, lifts, dumb waiters. Using a dumb waiter to get people up and down. Um, your rest restrooms. I could spend all day on this. Okay, every restroom in this part of this building are non-ADA compliant. 
every single one. They have a handicap stall that doesn't meet handicap requirements. You have to be able to get a wheelchair and turn it totally around to make it handicap approved. That also means that I, when I come in, I need to be able to turn around. It also means that I need to be able to get a wheelchair underneath the sink. And it also means that I need a three-foot door. It's got to be at least 36 inches to get a wheelchair through it. So many older buildings have a 30-inch or a 28-inch door. It's not handicapped. You could have all the handicapped stuff on the inside, but it's not handicapped if you can't get in. Another thing that we're encouraging churches that, that uh, have particularly aging adults that have walkers and wheelchairs and whatnot, is to put the auto door openers. We mash the button and the door opens. Um, a lot of them aren't terribly attractive, but man, do they sure help people that, that need that kind of assistance. You said a department has doors that be 42 inches? 36. 36. So, yeah. So, so a door, we got double doors, but it's got a petition. I have measurements. I don't know how wide. I probably think yeah. yeah, it's be handicapped. Well, we got a lady comes in a wheelchair when he's not pregnant. So I know she gets in and out. Then, then you may be fine. We're probably okay. So as, as you guys go back home, walk through your building as if you are not a member, that you've never been in the building before, and look for the story that your building tells. Um, something I've done with staff is I'll get the staff of the church to meet me out of the street, and we all line up as if we're in a car, and we walk into the parking lot all together. And I've had people go, man, I didn't realize we had so many doors. I wouldn't have known which door to go into. You start, you start seeing things differently when you're intentional about it. Any questions? On the, on the ADA stuff, and this, may just, this question may help somebody else. When, when somebody shows up for life safety in ADA, how do they generally find out about a church who's non-compliant? Well, fortunately, churches... Uh, well, to answer the question, it's generally something that's ticked off the church. Complaint. Yeah, there's a complaint. Um, fortunately, for most ADA, we are exempt. The preamble to the ADA exempts churches. Unless you have to pull a permit and do some renovation, then the local code official has the right to force you to bring things up to code and make them code compliant. I know when we, uh, not the last church I passed when we retired, was so supposedly retired, we <laughs> built a new social home. And in the uh, men's restroom, in the uh, handicapped area, they put the handle of the commode on the wrong side. Uh, they made us go in and tear everything out and redo it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, the, the Georgia IBC, <laughs> what they adopted as IBC. I've never heard of that. I in the first that. chapter, it says that the authority having jurisdiction makes the final say. Mm, yeah. Which means the guy that comes out to inspect your building, if he's had a bad taco for lunch or his wife kicked him out of the house and he's having a bad day, <laughs> he can make your life miserable. Your occupancy also determines which jurisdiction you fall under. And a lot of people don't know that. Mm -hmm. If you're a large occupancy, you may slide down on all the local codes you want with the state fire state fire marshal is actually in charge of your facility. Yeah. And so the, while, while the local guy may say, hey, no problem, we ain't going to worry about it, state fire marshal gets a complaint that can come through the channel of ADA life safety. Yeah, and, and to that point, Eric, understanding how our occupancy is established is a major thing. Yes. So in pew, if you have pews, they rate your occupancy on 18 inches per person. So 
if you measure all the pews divided by 18, that's your occupancy. If you go with these kind of seats, flexible seating, they take the square footage of your sanctuary and divide it by seven square feet per person. What that means is you, you are, you, they're manipulating the occupancy to almost 50% more than what the room can really hold. And here's their thought on it, is you could remove all the chairs, get that many people standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and we need, we need to be able to have you know, access for everybody out of the building. But what that does to you is, if the occupancy is higher, your restrooms have to meet that occupancy level, your parking requirements have to meet that, egress. your egress and ingress have to meet it, and in addition, your HVAC tonnage has to be sized to handle that many people. And so you're oversizing everything. Now, if you went to theater seats, theater seats are probably the most efficient, they're also the most expensive, but it's one of these to one of those. So it's a one-to-one -one ratio. There's no, you know, odd calculations. But I've had churches that say, well, we're, we're going to get rid of our pews and we're going to move chairs in. I said, that's fine as long as no one finds out and you don't have an incident in your building, but you've just changed your occupancy. Mm -hmm. And the code official may come in and say, nope, you changed your occupancy, you have to sprinkle this room now. Because you may have had uh, a room that only sat 220 people in pews, but the minute you get all the pews out, now you can see 350, 400 according to code. So in Georgia, anything over 300 seats has to be sprinkled under new, new buildings. If you've got an older building, you're grandfathered. Mm -hmm. So any, any space over 2,100 square feet, worship space over 2,100 square feet in Georgia has to be sprinkled going forward. And if you modify what is already grandfathered in, you come under the new code. Yeah, come under the new code. So. Thank you all for your time. Uh, enjoy your lunch and um, enjoy your drive home.